and good afternoon, and thank you for joining us on this hot, humid Thursday afternoon. What do you think of the weather, Brian Adams? Well, Buzz, I was hoping to have some good news to share with listeners about the state climate bill and the federal climate bill, but we have to put that off. Instead, we just have to sweat out the weather, not the climate, but the weather as it is today. Yeah, they, they, they named Manchin and, and the president and the others who named it, named it the Inflation Reduction Act in order to make sure that they took the attention away from uh, the climate aspect so that people like uh, Kirsten Cinema wouldn't do what she is now doing. But I'm hopeful that it's going to pass. Who knows? Yes, and I called Governor Baker today and said, sign what is on your desk. So we'll hope that Baker does. Charlie, this is Brian. Charlie, this is Brian. Earth to Charlie. Earth to Charlie signed the climate bill. And mm. encourage all our listeners to give the governor a call and encourage him to do the same. Okay. Brian, who do you have for us today? We have something almost exciting, someone almost exciting as the climate, almost exciting as climate change. We have my son, my son, yay, Taylor Adams, who is my wonderful son, joining us. Uh, in a couple of days, we're heading out to the Cape for a wonderful week, family week of vacation. But why would I have Taylor? Taylor well, first a- of all, Taylor, it is nice to meet you. My name is Buzz. My condolences. <laughs> but welcome. Thank you. Um, we'll let that one slide and move right, move right on, on, on into it. Taylor is an amazing uh, mountain climber. He has climbed the highest mountain in all seven continents, in the world, he lives in Salt Lake City, Utah, and, uh, and continues to climb, has a trip planned to Nepal in October, another expedition. So today, we're going to talk about the seven summits, climbing the seven summits. Uh, but first, I want to get at what is really the most crucial question of all regarding your mountaineering and your summiting. Why would you possibly engage in such extremely stressful activities that put me and your mother through excruciating agony. Are you trying to get back at us? Is it something that we did in your childhood? Why do you do this to us? Well, I feel a little bit bad after the fact, to be completely honest about it. Um, But it's just a little bit more fun that way. It's a little bit more fun instead of just, you know, losing the big game or or the match, or what not to, you know, if you mess up too much, die. It, it adds a little element. And uh, Thanks, thanks. That's really reassuring. Uh, um, you've climbed the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. And in all seriousness, uh, can you tell us what has prompted you to undertake such amazing adventures? Yeah, so when I first started out, I really didn't go into it thinking that I would um, you know, do the seven summits or the highest mountain on all seven continents. I first started climbing in college and did my first of those seven summits right after college, thinking I had one summer where I wasn't employed, wasn't, you know, still in school, and I wanted to do something cool. I climbed Denali, which is the tallest mountain in North America, in Alaska, without really knowing at all what I was getting into, um, it being... You know, some people would actually say it's the hardest of the seven summits. It's probably at least the second hardest, um, in my opinion. And I really had a great experience. I really enjoyed it. I did pretty well at altitude and in the harsh environment. And from there, I sort of saw it as a way to see the world, to go to the seven continents and see areas that most people don't get to see, um, you know, never thinking I would actually do them all. I sort of, you know, as I went, I was like, well, I'll do all of them except for Mount Everest. Um, And then sort of at the last, maybe not the last minute, but the last year before I went, I thought to myself, I would feel bad if, if I went and didn't do it. And then, you know, moving forward, if I had a wife, a family, and didn't feel like I could justify doing it, sort of wondering if I could have done it. Um, so I decided I just might as well Might as well do Everest. Hey, exactly. I got nothing else to do this weekend. I'm just going to climb friggin' Mount Everest. Yeah, and worst that happens is I die, and luckily that didn't happen. And luckily that didn't happen. Let's talk about Everest. Um, 
acclimatizing uh, to high altitudes is essential in all of these expeditions that you've done, but particularly in climbing Everest. Uh, tell us about the challenges of high altitude climbing. At what point did you have to use oxygen, and is it the only mountain that you used oxygen on? Yeah, so Everest is sort of in a league of its own, at least among the uh, the seven summits, and really uh, among a league of its own with only about 13 other mountains in the world that are over 8,000 meters, um, which is the, you know, quote-unquote death zone that human beings and really nothing can survive for any sort of extended period of time above. Um, 8,000 meters is what, 24,000 26,000 feet? 26,000. 26, feet. Uh-huh. Um, so Everest was the only mountain I've ever, you know, had to use oxygen on. It seems like it would make anything easier, but in reality, it's a whole lot more you have to carry up. It's, you know, apparatus that can break and malfunction if you're, you know, used to using it and then suddenly don't have it that can present problems. Um, but yeah, even with oxygen on Everest, because of, you know, what I've mentioned with the weight of it, the bulk of carrying these oxygen canisters up to the highest point on earth. Um, you can't just use a ton of oxygen and make it like walking anywhere at sea level. Um, the most you can use about four liters per minute. It's actually also not pure oxygen. It's like compressed air with oxygen added. It was from Russia. It was a little unclear what was actually, what was actually in the gas. Um, so it definitely did help a lot, but it for sure didn't make it easy. Um, on Everest, we started using it roughly above camp two, which is about like 22,000 feet, um, and would use a little bit more when we were climbing and then just a tiny bit when we were sleeping to allow us to, to get some reasonable semblance of sleep at night. Taylor Adams, with whom did you climb Everest? I went with a, a guided um, expedition through a group called Alpine Ascents, who's based out of Seattle. And you've done a lot of your expeditions. Yeah, with them. I've done most of mine that we've ha- that I've had to go with a guided group due to the mountain um, with Alpine Ascents. How how does how do they know they being Alpine Ascents know that people are mentally and physically fit for these expeditions? And when you're climbing, you're climbing as a group. If one person fails, the whole group can fail. What criteria do they use to make sure that people are up for this kind of climb? Yeah, so this is sort of a hot button topic, especially with Everest, but with a lot of the big mountains. Um, you'll see a lot of you know press reports about Everest and all the people that shouldn't be up there. Um, and it definitely is an issue, I think, for the most part, sort of American and European companies that are guiding individuals up are very good about being very selective with who they bring up. Um, You know, it's in their best interest not to have people fail miserably and die and such as that. Death death is bad for business. It's not great for business. Um, (laughs) You know, I think, you know, especially in terms of Everest, I think the main issue has been as more Eastern country have gotten more affluent and have a class of people with the desire and money to climb big mountains, they've, you know, responded as as any capitalist would and, and made expeditions that will take more or less anyone as long as you're able to pay the often large amounts of money. And I feel like it's those groups, for the most part, um, where the caliber of who's going to the top is a little bit more suspect. On all of my expeditions, they're very, very, very meticulous about who they are allowing up, having to see a resume and references uh, from previous climbs. Climbing mountains, I, I'm imagining, is not just physically challenging, but mentally challenging as well. How do you psych yourself up for that last push to the top? Were, were there times in any of these expeditions where you felt, oh my God, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. Why am I here? What am I doing? I'm scared. I'm exhausted. Uh, Talk about that the sort of emotion, the, that yeah. emotional challenge. Yeah, so I think, you know, talking about Everest in particular, I think sort of the easy part, at least emotionally or mentally, was the end when you were actually trying to go to the top. The, the much more difficult was the six weeks previous when you're on the mountain and not actually climbing at least to the top. You know, Everest is, is very interesting because for the... Almost exclusively, it's all these type A personalities that 
are extremely highly trained. Wait a minute. You have a type A personality? Well, sometimes. <laughs> I've been told I do for what that's worth. But anyway, so all these people are, are, have been training for months or years or, or decades or whole lives to, to climb Mount Everest and then go there. And the first thing you do once you get to base camp is you hang out for a week. And really, you know, the most you're going to do is walk around base camp and go for a walk to keep your body acclimatizing. You can't just climb from the bottom to the top in one push like you can the mountains around here or even on the West Coast. It's a very structured and very slow progression. Partway up the mountain, down. Partway up the mountain, down until you actually go to the top. Um, so it's very hard to be there to have trained for so long and then be told the best thing to do is to really do not a whole lot, to play eight hours of cards for the next week and maybe go for a walk. Um, once, once the time comes to actually climb higher up on the mountain, I feel like that's much more what, what everyone has been training for and can be a little bit easier, at least from a mental perspective. How long does it take you? To go from the from the uh, all the way to the top. So the whole expedition, for the most part, is about two months. We're talking Everest here. For Everest, exactly. Um, but again, most of that time is acclimatization. From actually going to base camp, which is a little over seventeen thousand feet, to the top and back down is roughly a week. When everything is said and done, it can be a little bit longer if. You get stuck in bad weather, but it is about a week. What was it like standing on the top of Everest? It was really cool in a way. I, it, I feel like over the two months of the expedition, there were many more moments that I enjoyed and felt felt more a part of the whole expedition more than being on top. It was a little bit anticlimactic. Um I was much more concerned about not dying coming back down than than I thought I would be. I know, you know, 80% of accidents happen on the way back down. Um and but I hadn't quite realized how easy-ish it was to get up, but how incredibly scared I was to go down. So I really didn't enjoy it a whole lot. What what's the fear of coming back down? It first of all, the technical Hillary step, which is sort of the last obstacle from the top, there was a dead body right at the bottom of it, which turns out they had actually, I think, had a heart attack or a stroke on top and were carried down there. But where they were lying, I was sure they had fallen down the Hillary step, and that was exactly what I had been scared of before I saw the dead body, and that made it a little bit worse. And it's a tough, it's a at, at 28,000 feet you're at. 29,000 feet. 29,000 so, is a Hillary step. And everything is tough. Going up, you know, like I said, easy. Maybe easy is brushing over a whole lot of other things. But going up at least is a lot safer. Um, you're on fixed lines, which are ropes attached to the mountain. And you have an ascender, which you climb the ropes. And you can't really fall down. The ascender will sort of lock onto the rope um, so it's almost like rock climbing on a fixed line. Uh, Taylor Adams, before we we have one minute before we take a break, but you've climbed all the highest mountains on seven continents. How do you compare Everest to those other mountains? Um, I I think Everest was you know as could be imagined is was the hardest. Um, but it, it's not unlike a lot of the other big glaciated mountains like Denali in Alaska. Or Mount Vincent in Antarctica, um, it's it's just a lot bigger. There's also a lot more people on it, so it sort of adds an additional element um, to the climb that I didn't experience on a lot of the other mountains. You know, Everest is all about timing, timing the right time to go to the summit when the weather is good, and also the the crowds are less. We're talking with Taylor Adams. Taylor is my son. My, and I'm proud to be his father. He has climbed all seven of the highest mountains in each of the seven continents. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Taylor. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. It keeps changing fast, and it don't last long. But the Colorado 
This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHFD. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at WeinzickNursery.com. Cabbage keeps for months. Corn is good for a day or two. And basil, make that pesto pronto. There's so much farm fresh food all around you. So stop at a farm stand, go to the farmer's market, and look for the bright yellow Local Hero label at stores and restaurants. You live among some of the best farmland in the world. The bright yellow Local Hero label says, this food is farm fresh. Use CISA's Local Hero guide at buylocalfood.org to find local food close by. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is going back to traditions here. Uh, this is Port Askeg, eight-year-old single malt scotch. So it's actual scotch. This is Scotland scotch, mm. scotchy scotch scotch. This is an Isla single malt, peatier in style. This one does not suffer supply chain issues because you wouldn't be giving it to us if it did, right? Correct. It says Port Askeg, which is a location, but it's an independent bottler that gives them their whiskey. Because there's so many different approaches on whiskey, I I really try and hit everything with a very open mind as far as what can be good. This one got 95 points at the, the Ultimate Spirits Challenge. I think this is very good. And how much is this single malt? This is $66.99, so it's kind of right in that low to mid-entry level price point. Find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at State Street. Five eight six one thousand. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer, and if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Vaya con Muñoz with Natalia Muñoz. Saturday mornings at 10. WHMP. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. And we're talking with Taylor Adams, my son. He's a mountaineer and he's climbed the highest mountain in each of the seven continents. Taylor, not only have you done this incredibly mountaineering uh, feat, but you've also done it with type 1 diabetes, which is pretty amazing. Can you talk about the challenges that that presented in climbing these mountains? Yeah, so, you know, having <laughs> diabetes at baseline can be, you know, challenging under the best of circumstances. So doing all of that you know, under such extreme circumstances can be, you know, multiple orders of magnitude more challenging. I think when I first started, the hardest thing was that no one else, not no one else, but very, very, very few people had ever even done it. The one thing I remember is when I did my Got first... Climb the mountains with diabetes. Yes, such yeah. big mountains, at yeah. least. Um, when I first did my first of the big mountains, Denali, I remember... I was, you know, just out of college. We were on a bus in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, driving towards the mountain. And the guide turns to me and says, what did you, have you ever, or what are you going to do because your glucometer won't work? And your glucometer is what you use to check your blood sugar. It's important for giving yourself the right amount of insulin. 
And I'm like, what? And he, he had Xeroxed this scientific article about how glucometers don't work at elevation based on the chemical reaction that they use. And I was like, oh, it would have been nice if someone had called me before I'm in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, and told me this instead of right now, because I was like, well, I guess we'll just see if it's true. Oh my God, I'm glad you're telling me this after the fact. Continue. And it turns out it wasn't true. I think they're rated to you know, operate under a certain altitude. I think theoretically the reaction shouldn't work up high, but for whatever reason it does. Um, but, you know, since then and doing bigger mountains, it's, it's just a whole lot more to think about instead of just keeping yourself, you know, safe and healthy and alive and warm. You're trying to keep your insulin from freezing. You're trying to keep your electronics that keep you alive from freezing um, you're trying to eat enough, but not eat too much so your blood sugar stays within a reasonable goal, all while trying to do, a, you know, whatever crazy thing you're trying to do on the mountain. And you were raising money for diabetes while you did these seven summits. Is that true? Yes, I was raising money for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Fund that raises money to try to find a cure for juvenile or type 1 diabetes. So as if these outdoor explorations aren't thrilling enough. You've picked a job that puts you in the front lines of some exciting stuff as well. Can you tell us about what you're doing in Salt Lake City? Yeah. So, you know, previously I just had a hobby that was incredibly dangerous and would worry you and mom all the time when I was doing it. But I figured why just have my hobby be incredibly dangerous when I also have a job that's, you know, one of the more dangerous jobs you know, definitely less dangerous than climbing Everest, but that's not saying a whole lot. Um, so for a while, I've been a nurse in the pediatric ICU. And just a couple months ago, I started as a nurse with a pediatric critical care flight unit. So you're taking helicopters and planes out to areas to transport very sick patients back to children's hospitals. Is that, is that right? Yes. Um, this is one of the first times I've ever interviewed someone where I know all the answers, and I, I make it sound <laughs> like I don't, but I pretty much know know all the stuff. We don't have a whole lot of time left. Um, if you could summit any of these seven mountains again, which one would you do? If you just do one, one of the seven, do you have a favorite, one that you'd go back to in a pinch? I think I'd love to do Denali again. Um, one, it being in the U.S., it's, you know... I think it's cool to live in the same country as the mountain. Also, the route we did was was different than what 95% of people climb. Um, we did a route called the Muldrow Glacier, which looking back, is like, why did I start out by doing this crazy route up Denali? Most people fly onto the mountain, onto a glacier around 7,000 feet and climb to the top, which is 20,000 plus a little bit Um feet tall. We started about 20 miles away from the mountain at 2,000 feet and had to backpack to the mountain and then climb from the very bottom, which was awesome, but it was it was a little bit diff, more difficult than I would love to do again. Um, so it'd be, I think it'd be cool to go and climb the same mountain by a different route. Also, you know, especially with my job now, doing a lot of flying, you fly onto the glacier of the mountain and and the flight to the mountain flying in among all the crevasses and, and glaciers looks really cool. Well, I, I am, your courage is only exceeded by your competency, obviously. And what you're doing, um, for pediatric ICUs, you're flying to these remote places, your altruism is pretty amazing. And Brian, I can't imagine. I think, uh, I'm sure it was my wife that did something right. I, I would take no no credit at all other than teaching Taylor in very inappropriate um, kinds of things that he, that he can use to his credit when he's on mountains <laughs> like that. Real quick before we go, any advice that you'd like to give to people who are seeking these kinds of experiences? Um, I think in general, just not letting whatever it is stop you from doing whatever it is you want to do. You know, I think diabetes stops a lot of people from doing even things that are a lot more day-to-day um, -day for most people. So, you know, if someone can do something like climb Mount Everest with diabetes, then, you know, most people, I think, can 
you know, overcome whatever challenges they may have and do whatever it is that gives their life meaning or happiness or whatever it is. We've been talking with Taylor Adams. Taylor is a mountaineer and pediatric intensive care flight nurse uh, climbing the highest mountain each of the seven continents. Taylor, thank you so much for being here and stay alive, please, for your mom and my <laughs> mom and my sake. When we come back, we'll be back with something entirely different, which is jazz. We are. We're going to have Bruce Nimzik, and, and he is going to have an incredible guitarist from neighboring Vermont. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton Police and Massachusetts State Police are continuing to investigate a deadly accident in East Hampton Tuesday night. A 60-year-old woman and 81-year-old man were struck and killed while walking by the Burger King on Northampton Street. The man died at the scene while the woman was pronounced dead at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield. The driver of the car, a resident of Hadley, is being cooperative with police, according to the Northwestern DA's office. Discussions are underway in Amherst about what to do with the Merry Maple Tree. The tree has been at the center of the town common for nearly half a century, but with an extensive renovation on the horizon and age of the tree, it may need to be removed. Tree Warden Alan Snow says the Merry Maple is in its decline phase and will most likely be a safety hazard in a few years, but many residents want it to stay. The Public Shade Tree Committee conducted a site visit on Tuesday and will hold a public hearing to discuss the Merry Maple's fate next Tuesday at 5 p.m. via Zoom. The Holyoke City Council is facing some controversy after hiring a new assistant assessor. The City Council voted to select East Hampton resident Cheryl Holloway to the position. Councilor-at-Large Kevin Jourdain says the assistant assessor position has a residency requirement, which would exclude Holloway. Other council members say only a city officer must be a resident. Mass Live reports that the council could file a home rule petition post-hire that would waive residency, contingent on approval by the legislature. Plenty of sunshine this afternoon, hot and humid, a high of 94 to 98. Chance for a few scattered showers or thunderstorms this evening, otherwise variable clouds, an overnight low of 68 to 74. Humid sun cloud mix tomorrow, a high of 90 to 94. Afternoon showers and storms, showers and storms possible both Saturday and Sunday as well. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hello, this is Linda DeGillis, Vice President and Trust Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services. Many of our customers are surviving spouses who have found themselves suddenly in charge of their household's financial savings and investments, which had previously been handled exclusively by their late spouse. A number of our female customers have told us that one of the reasons they moved their accounts to GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services was because they felt patronized or talked down to by their spouse's financial advisor. At GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, our team of professionals will always treat you with respect and compassion. If you are looking for portfolio management, estate settlement services, or trust services, please call us, Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services at 413 775 8335. That's 413-775-8335. Or stop into any GSB office or contact us online through the wealth management section at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees. 
for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Always one of my favorite times of the week because Ruth Griggs does Take 5 and always has incredible musicians for us to meet. Who do you have today? We do have a musician today, complete with a friend of his. So we're going to have a special treat at the end of this segment. So everyone who's listening now, stay on until the end. I have as our very special guest, Dre Hobbs who is a guitarist, a jazz guitar, guitarist, um, lives up in the beautiful village of Grafton, Vermont. The Republic of Vermont. And he's here in person today because he's got a, a gig in Chicopee, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But Dre is someone that I've known for a long time from the uh, jazz workshop where he's played. And I'm just thrilled that his uh, music mate, uh, Sarah Clay, uh, recommended that we have him on before he goes down to his gig with and, and if the Starcats today. Any listeners haven't heard Dre play, they're in for a real treat. So Dre, you have sent me, whatever that means. I hope I sent you someplace good. <laughs> it has been someplace great. So um, I was, I was, you know, I've heard Dre play several times, and I know that, um, you know, Dre, you've got, You've you've also played with amazing musicians and have um, an incredible repertoire of you know jazz and blues and a little bit of rock thrown in there and uh, that really you can play pretty much anything. Um, it was wonderful to see comments from Peter Bernstein and Eugene Newman and John Stoll and some of your buds about you as a teacher and a performer. So. Let's let's kind of go back a little bit and tell us sort of where you got your start. Like, where did the inspiration come from and when? Boy, that's, do you have an hour? Um, I sort of got exposed to music in Chicago, where I'm from, and started out as a roadie for a rock band and just sort of um, got involved slowly but surely through that. And, um, you know, grew up in the 60s, so I was... Uh, exposed to all the great 60s music and then um, started taking some jazz lessons in Chicago. I was also very interested in jazz and regularly attended the Jazz Showcase and saw some great acts back then. And um, eventually wound up in Vermont um, at Marlboro College and I went and looked on uh, I, I noticed that Attila Zoller had a little blurb in the back of Guitar Player magazine back in 1975 that he was teaching in Newfane. I saw Marlboro, Newfane, I'm going. So I, I introduced myself to Attila Zoller, and uh, that, be, that started a rather unique educational experience for me. Were you on the faculty at Marlboro College? I was eventually, yes. I, I was a professor, adjunct, quote-unquote, adjunct professor of music for a time. Nice. And I taught, at the, of course, at the Vermont Jazz Center for a number of years when Attila was alive. Yeah, because he was the director. Correct. Yes. And founder. Right, right, right. And right. Um, so my, my real education in music and jazz in particular came through him. I had a kind of a unique experience in that for some reason he just took me under his wing and he divided his time between New York City and Newfane, Vermont, and he would bring up his friends, and he would, he would call me all the time. It just almost hound me. Today, come on up. Uh, Ron Carter is here. Let's play. I Seriously? Played, oh, Are yes. you kidding? Oh, oh yes. I played uh, with Roland Hanna, George Moraz, Ron Carter. Jimmy Heath taught me the changes to You've oh. Changed. So wow. I, I, Drea, I, I have to tell you the first time I heard your name. Yeah? We had a friend, Andrea Alberts. Mm-hmm. She was a friend and introduced me to David Amram. Okay. And I saw this crazy name, Dre, that had too many A's in it. There you go. And then I heard you play and with David Amram. Uh-huh. That yeah. Was, oh, you saw that concert? No, I heard. Oh, you heard? Yes. Okay. Yes, that was another one. Um, I, uh, you, of course, know that we, I played with George Kay, and I've known George for many, many years. And, and he mentioned to me once, 
we were like the last generation of the apprentice system. Mm. And that's basically what it was. It, mm. was. it was a lot of tough love from the crazy Hungarian, but phenomenal musician Attila Zoller. And um, I started out as a student and wound up, he's, you're playing with me. You know? Ruth, this is dangerous to do in front of a musician, but Dre's music is, is so, how would you describe it? It's so unique. and It's transcendent. It, it really is. I mean, it just takes you to a completely different place. And and frankly, I haven't heard Dre play solo or be, you know, just the solo lead with a trio for a while. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing you this afternoon. Because, um, <laughs> it's yeah. dreamy. It really, you get lost in his mm -hmm. music. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I know that John Stowell is one of your, your, your collaborators and you've worked with him a lot. I also know him from the jazz workshop. Yes. Paul Arslanian's had him, uh, and he's out in Oregon or Portland or Seattle well, or... when he's at home, yes, he's generally on the road about 11 months out of the year, every year since he was... Wow. He's just a road warrior. That, that's his life. Wow. But he stops in every once in a while to southern Vermont and... Uh, and, and shows me how to play music. He's and, a, he, like, tell us about, you know, your, your collaboration with him, because he's obviously a guitarist. Yes. How do your styles mesh having two guitarists? That's a lot. It, 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 it's, so a very, it's a great challenge, because uh, John is an extraordinarily accomplished musician, and it, it took a little, bit of a, a little bit of time for me to adjust to his style, because it is literally... Unique. No one else plays like John. So uh, we've been playing together now for, I would say, about, oh, at least a dozen years in various concerts and done a lot of recording together, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So what, how do you work with him? I mean, what, you know, you've obviously found the, the right role, the right collaborative approach with him. What, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Y yes, I can. Um, in words, it may be difficult. It's probably much easier to show, you know, uh, with, through the music, but... We, we find, we either, like our, a typical concert with John will involve tunes we know in common and tunes that John wants to play that I have to learn, and they're always very, very challenging. And so um, I can't... He's had a tremendous influence on me and is uh, a world-class guitarist and... I'm very grateful to have him in my life. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, I know that you've been doing quite a bit of work also with Sarah Clay. Yes, indeed. Um, with great pleasure. Vocalist and flutist that we had on the show a couple of months ago. And uh, she's um, a good friend of mine as well as my vocal teacher, as you know, as you probably know. Mm -hmm. And um, she, you're one of the members of her Star Cats band, yes. right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and um, what kind of, what kind of how, we, how you perform, how you play in that environment with um, those musicians. Sure. Um, I actually started out with Sarah uh, playing a variety of duo gigs. So that's really where we got our start. And um, Sarah, because of the, especially because of the COVID thing, but, but the music scene in general, um, just decided to do an end run around everything and, and got um, involved in, in booking these, these concerts through the state. Um, and so what we do there is um, these are, Sarah has a themed concert. So we're now doing a concert series called Stolen Moments and all, the, all of the songs have something to do with escaping, uh, whether it's on a boat or a ship or, or whatever. So uh, that's what we, that's largely what we do. And she presents all the songs and the history of the songs. So it's really like a presentation. Nice. Dre, when, when you are working with a vocalist of that caliber, when, when you, um, I mean, your, your guitar playing is so central and creative. And yet you want to sort of highlight a vocalist when you're playing behind a vocalist yes. or with a vocalist. How do you, uh, I, I see the tension between those two things. Oh, I suppose the answer is, first of all, with great care. <laughs> um, uh, Your guitar is like a vocalist. Well, it is, and it's um, hopefully not a drunken one. It's, it's, um, <laughs> uh, 
it's a challenge and it's a it's a very special task that I have. My responsibility is basically to not mess up the vocalist. So I have to present her with a. Um, I it's always improvised. I, I improvise an introduction and then I accompany her and. That's how it works. Well, that's a, a beautiful place to take a brief pause for us to contemplate these wonderful things that Dre has told us about. We'll be back in a couple of minutes with more from Dre Hobbs, jazz guitarist. Happy talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. This is the Afternoon you Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. What does the James Webb Space Telescope tell us about what was happening in outer space 13 billion years ago and what kind of life is or was out there? Join us when we speak with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid at Salman Hamid's Universe, Friday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley Co-op. Moses and Kitch want out of their Chicago neighborhood and off the corner to which they are tethered. They dream of things, clean socks, and the return of a dead brother. Things that await in the promised land, if only they can pass over. The Chester Theatre Company presents Pass Over, Antoinette Nwandu's surreal and morbidly funny existential drama. The first play performed when Broadway reopened last year. Pass Over, final weekend, Wednesday through Sunday. Get tickets now at chestertheater.org. In the mood for takeout? Want to find yoga classes, music lessons, or art supplies nearby? Save 30% on full-value gift certificates to dozens of local businesses and services from Springfield to Brattleboro and everywhere in between. Whether it's a quick bite for lunch, something nice for a special occasion, or just an excuse for some good old retail therapy, save 30% on full-value gift certificates at the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Walmart has launched Walmart Restored, a section of Walmart.com that only sells used and refurbished products. In addition to computers, Walmart Restored offers TVs, smartphones, cameras, audio gear, large and small appliances, and video games. With the cost of living rising rapidly, the number of Americans who live paycheck to paycheck appears to be rising just as fast. Lending Club Corporation has released its periodic study of consumer spending patterns and found 61% of consumers spend all of their money between pay periods. Hyundai is recalling more than 72,000 2020 to 2022 venues. It's another issue with passenger restraints. The front driver's side and or passenger side seatbelt pretensioners may explode upon deployment in a crash that would cause injuries to occupants of the vehicle. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to be back in the studio with Buzz and Dan and team and uh, with my very special guest, guitar jazz guitarist Dre Hobbs. Mm -hmm who's uh, cruising through town on his way to a gig. So nice for you to make a little stop off here at uh, the studio. So one of the things that we haven't talked about much, uh, Dre, is your teaching. And, and I understand you do a lot of that. Up yes. Through the Vermont Jazz Center and any other locations? I'm on the faculty at the Putney School, so I teach a lot of um, – I teach quite a bit there. And I um, – Started my own master class series uh, where I bring up great players from New York and put them together with regional people. So I do that twice a year. Um, mm -hmm. Starting that back up this year after the COVID thing, and I just got through talking last night to Jonathan Kreisberg, the great New York yeah. City-based guitarist. And 
So I've had um, Peter Bernstein up and Vic Juris and Gilad Hexelman and um, wow. on and on. Uh, and where, where are the master classes held? At the Grafton Inn. At the Grafton Inn? Yes. Nice spot for a master class. Indeed, yes. So it's, it, it's worked out for everybody at the end, the students and myself and the, the teachers. And, so it's, I, and actually, I started that because I had this young guitarist at the Putney School who was a precocious talent. And I realized very quickly I'd never had anybody like this in 40 years. And I felt a, a responsibility to expose this youngster to as many great musicians as I could. So I started this whole thing because of this young man. And no doubt inspired by Attila Zoller. <laughs> Without a doubt, yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah he was so if important. someone wanted to um, check you out in terms of teaching mm -hmm. or the master class, where would they find out information? On my website, um, uh, drehobs.com. And um, that's going to be updated again because we're just getting started post-COVID. Okay, great. So. so that's D-R-A-A-H-O-B-B-S. Two A's, two B's. That's easy to remember. Yeah, that's easy to remember. Uh, but I do have a question about the teaching. I, yes. I do understand how you can teach the technical part, like, mm -hmm. you know, how to do a, a barcode uh, minor seven. Mm -hmm. What I don't understand is how you teach innovation and creativity. Or improvisation. Yeah, how do you teach that? That's uh, with difficulty, but um, the way I approach it is I take a very um, direct approach from from the blues, uh, and I mean from the very most basic country blues. One, four, five kind of stuff. Exactly, and they, in that tradition, which is, uh, came through into jazz of call and response. So that's how I teach it. I, I say, okay. So they give them that as a background structure, but then how do they learn where to go? Well, I will su suggest to them that they play two or three notes, and then I might play something in response to that and say, okay, now you think of yourself as having a conversation with yourself. How, how are you going to respond to the, what you first said? And I emphasize that it's a, it's, it's a language, so you're really in, in a dialogue, so an idea should, I, should carry through from one call and response to the next. So you're actually involved with telling a story. So I try to organize it, and, and you can tell a story with three notes. Well, I love eavesdropping on your conversations with yourself. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I look at it as a conversation with the other musician and that you're, you're kind of playing tennis back and forth. And what I love about doing that with Sarah, for instance, is that you know she's obviously more advanced than me, so she'll improvise on something, which gives me some ideas. And of course, music is all about listening. It's all about listening. So your ears are very hard at work, you know, taking in what you're hearing and then translating it to your own improvisation. So it's a it's a wonderful process, but we, I don't want to spend too much longer on that insofar as we, we do have a special other guest in the <laughs> studio today. But um, I, I just wanted to let everyone know that um, not only has Dre played with the Northampton Jazz Festival at Jazzy Arts Night Out in the past, um, but he's, it's just been announced that he's going to be playing this coming Friday, August 12th at our um, Jazzy Arts Night Out, and oh, he's going to be so playing at, at Pinch Pottery on Main Street. Um, Lucky with, Northampton. Yes, with, with a bass player named Vim Auer. So it's going to be Dre Hobbs and Vim Auer, which is just the coolest thing. You just got to go see this in person. <laughs> um, and Dre, you were mentioning something about Vim's uh, bass, yes. which sounded so interesting. Yes, it's a very high-end uh, acoustic electric bass. It, he plays it like an electric bass, but it's about four inches thick and has a very deep resonant sound, so it really does sound like an uh, acoustic bass. Sounds tr just incredible. So a Jazzy Arts Night Out is during Arts Night Out with uh, four different uh, ensembles playing around town between 5 and 8 p.m., so Friday, this coming next Friday, on August 12th. So, um, Andre, do you have any other um, concerts or performances that you'd like to talk about before we break? I do. I'm um, going to, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a ways off, but on October 8th, I'm playing at the Latches Theater with the great New York City vocalist Kendra Shank. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And that's with a group that includes Rich Greenblatt, 
from Berkeley on Vibes. And, um, uh, and of course, Slatch is, is there in Brattleboro. Correct. And in if Brattleboro. you haven't been there, listener. And is that through the Vermont Jazz Center? Uh, no, it's, they, I got, uh, it was from the Latches Theater. Cool. Yeah, awesome. it's, it's really great. It's going to be a benefit for a uh, homeless shelter as well. So it's oh. going to be kind of a win-win. And that's October 8th? October 8th. Which sounds like it's around uh, Indigenous People's Day weekend time frame. Great. Well, let's put that on our... And again, if you want to learn anything more about Dre, it's D-R-A-A-H-O-B-B-S.com. Um, he's got some wonderful videos on his website, but we get to listen to him ourselves and all of you listeners out there right now. So what are you playing for us this afternoon, Dre? Well... I think I'll play along together. Love that song. Is it good? Extraordinary talent, Dre Hobbs. Thank you, Dre. Thank you. What a gift. Sorry that we couldn't have let you go on forever, (laughs) alone together. (laughs) Unbelievable. So, thank you so much for joining us today. Bruce, always thank thank you you so much. And everybody, thank you for joining us today. Join us tomorrow. This is the Afternoon afternoon Buzz buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the Afternoon Buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners. The only live and local talk in the Valley and and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 5 o'clock.